Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. I'm Erin Viner sitting in for Jonathan Hessen. This week's episode is about Middle East energy and supply shortages. The Middle East became prominent in world affairs for its religious and cultural centrality due to its location, in part, between continents and maritime routes, but most of all because of the discovery of oil. At a time when demand for the resource escalated by the industrial and transportation sectors, oil is still king, but there is a crown prince of sorts, natural gas, which is edging closer and closer towards center stage in deals between local actors such as Israel and Egypt, as well as between clusters of countries and regional producers and European customers. In this season of supply shortages exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine war, what are the prospects for Mideast energy reserves and initiatives? To analyze this, we are joined from central Israel by Amir Foster, who is the executive director at the Israeli Natural Gas Trade Association. Hello, Amir. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you. And also joining us from Prague is the senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, Ambassador Matthew Bryza. Hello, Ambassador. Thank you for being with us today as well. Hi, Erin. I'm very happy to be here with you. That's great. And as always, Amir Oren, who's our TV7 analyst, host of TV7 Watchmen Talk and Powers and Play. Thanks for being with us, as always. Thank you, Erin. All right, let's start with you, um, Amir. Can we expect some sort of historic regional unity about to break out at any moment, all participating in this mission to supply alternative energy sources for Europe, which is really hurting right now? Well, most uh, historic events uh, were not predicted but rather uh, analyzed um, after the fact as inevitable, though uh, no one uh, saw them coming. So uh, rather than uh, um, chance um, uh, some prophecy, uh, we can focus on, on the facts, the facts on the ground and uh, below the ground, especially below the uh, sea uh, surface. Energy uh, is not only uh, the lifeline which you referred to, but also security and diplomacy. Um, securing uh, energy sources and uh, modes of uh, transportation is vital for uh, every country and for the defense of uh, the West, which is being led by the United States, as the United States competes with uh, China and Russia. Now, um, in uh, the Middle East, in uh, uh, both the Levant and the Persian Gulf, there are problems regarding uh, energy. Um, Lebanon, for instance, is in dire straits. Uh, there is hardly uh, any power there for um, uh, residents, uh, for hospitals and uh, uh, other essential uh, services. But also Lebanon uh, is uh, in disagreement with Israel about a particular uh, tract of, um, of maritime resources. On the other hand, what uh, you um, mentioned uh, is an agreement, an unprecedented one, even though it's more symbolic than substantial right now, and our guests will obviously elaborate uh, about it, between Israel and Egypt and uh, consumers uh, in Europe. 
it is uh, too early uh, to hail this agreement as, as groundbreaking or sea breaking or what have you, um, because the quantities are um, far and few between, especially uh, when you compare uh, the output to the needs of Europe. But it's a good start. Thank you. I think that's all uh, really insightful. Ambassador Bryza, what about other regional nations, which Amir had just touched on, such as Turkey, Azerbaijan, where, where you were based and where you served as an ambassador to, or north, the northern Kurdistan region in Iraq? Will they also eventually serve as exporters to Europe? Is there a possibility for that? Yeah, they will. I mean, first of all, Azerbaijan already is exporting gas to Europe uh, along a, a really complex pipeline system. Uh, that stretches from the Caspian Sea uh, across Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey, and then connects to another pipeline that crosses Greece, Albania, goes under the Adriatic Sea all the way to Italy. So that's already happening. To put it in perspective, um, that pipeline brings six units of gas, six billion cubic meters of gas to uh, Turkey, and then another 10 to Italy and onward in Europe. Uh, that compares with uh, 155 BCM that Europe imported from Russia last year. So 10 out of Russia's 155 is can be provided by Azerbaijan or is being provided by Azerbaijan. Uh, and this new agreement between Israel and Egypt and the EU will bring two BCM to Europe. So as, as we were just hearing, it's a, a small amount of gas that will go from um, Israel now, but it's, it's a precedent uh, and hopefully there will be more. But the real, the, the most logical route, I think, for larger volumes of Israeli gas to make it to Europe would be a subsea pipeline to Turkey. Um, the problem is there's uh, this, either the uh, waters of Cyprus in between or those of Lebanon and Syria. And so that brings a whole series of political problems. On top of that, though, as you said, Aaron, there's an enormous amount of natural gas in northern Iraq uh, and in Iran, huge volumes of gas. I mean, the second largest reserves in the world of natural gas are in Iran. But again, transit from both of those countries uh, to Turkey and then onward to Europe face political challenges. Finally, the fourth largest reserves of natural gas in the world are in Turkmenistan on the eastern side of the Caspian Sea. Uh, for years, the most logical way to get that gas to markets other than China uh, or Russia was a, a pipeline across the Caspian Sea that's never been built because Russia has opposed it. Russia and Iran have opposed it. Now, my final point is, there are intense negotiations going on between Azerbaijan and Iran and Azerbaijan, Iran and Turkey uh, to bring Turkmenistani gas across Iran and then into Azerbaijan and Turkey and then onward to Europe. It's all really fascinating. Uh, Mr. Foster, can you elaborate just a bit and tell us about this historic MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, the tripartite one that has just been signed between Israel and Egypt and the European Union? Yes. So... I will start with that, that, you know, um, uh, the, our industry, the natural gas industry, it's, uh, an industry, particularly in Israel, that uh, starts with people that have a dream, dream to supply uh, clean and uh, secure energy to Israel. And uh, when we find much more gas that we need, then we start to secure clean energy to our neighbors. Today, and of the electricity in Jordan is made by Israeli gas. And Israel is one of the most important uh, elements in the energy security of Egypt. The um, 
the MOU between Israel, Egypt, and the EU is very important because I think it's mostly uh, announcement of the European, European Union that they see that our region is very important for the uh, natural gas security, uh, security of supply of energy to Europe. Of course, now the quantities are not big. And the next step after we will have a, another, uh, like when Leviathan will start uh, his second stage of development. So we will have more uh, production capabilities, maybe after that with Tamar, then we will have some options. One of the options is like we hear before through Turkey, which is quite, um, um, it, it's not easy option to deliver, but it's very economic option to do. Uh, and the other option, which is more visible, I think, is to have a subsea pipeline directly to the liquefaction plants in Egypt, and then we can have much more uh, gas to deliver to Europe. And they have two liquefaction plants that work in, in very low utilization rate. So this project uh, can be a quite fast project to deliver because we just need to have uh, a subsea pipeline and we, we need to have uh, second stage, stage development in Levada. And it's not to start from zero. I think two, three years we can accomplish that. You just asked, answered what I was going to ask you. How fast? And that is actually pretty fast. Um, Amir, until now, no one's mentioned Qatar. Let me bypass that particular point uh, by, by mentioning the impact that uh, our topic uh, of discussion has on military doctrine and military sure. practice. Uh, throughout history, of course, um, military, the military art uh, has been combined. It's been armies and navies. And obviously, if uh, you were talking about continental campaigns, uh, it was armies. And if you wanted uh, to uh, uh, protect trade routes or explore new markets, you needed navies. And with oil came the need of navies to get petroleum for its own needs, not Good only point. for... Now, um, uh, over the last uh, several decades, the importance of navies has declined. You didn't see any uh, major uh, maritime battles, no, no uh, uh, midway, uh, no Trafalgar, uh, and so on and so forth. But mm -hmm. now, with what we talked about, with uh, gas pipelines and uh, with shipping, uh, um, uh, transporting uh, LNGs and all of that, navies are uh, as important as they used to be. And uh, you can see it because navies have to protect the assets the, the derricks themselves, um, Leviathan, um, Tamar, and all of that, and the transportation from uh, the exploration sites to the uh, uh, facilities and the from uh, to the consumers. So we will probably see, and this also has to do with Gulf countries such as Qatar and others, we will see uh, a major uh, upward shift in the importance of navies, including the Israeli Navy. 
navies and possibly diplomatically as well. Ambassador Briza, do you think that any of this could lead to any sort of regional normalization, for example, between Qatar and Israel, which right now there, there's no relation? Will this bring countries that were former, that were enemies closer together? Well, um, yeah, probably not Qatar, because Qatar is a huge supplier of liquid natural gas, and it's sending it directly to Europe. Uh, so Qatar won't be involved in this arrangement, but certainly, for, for sure, this is going to help shore up uh, Egypt's relations with Israel and vice versa. Uh, and there's a sort of a, a reverberating impact of the Abraham Accords uh, at the end of the Trump administration that helped Israel normalize relations with a number of Arab, with four Arab states. Um, and, and Egypt isn't part of that, but Egypt is in an extended way as, as relations among Arab states with Israel in general improve. At the same time, uh, Turkey's relations are improving. Uh, yes, with Israel, there's hope for full normalization soon. Uh, hopefully there will be ambassadors uh, assigned to both countries again. Uh, Yair Lapid is planning, was planning a visit as foreign minister to uh, Turkey in the near term now with Israeli politics uh, sort of standing on their head. It's unclear whether that will go ahead. But in any case, uh, President Herzog has visited Turkey. So um, those relations are warming as well. And gas and a possible pipeline to Turkey uh, is a centerpiece of that warming of relations. So Israel has tried to use the possibility of natural gas exports as a diplomatic tool to improve its relationships with countries all around it. And, you know, it's it's been delivering gas to Jordan since, I guess, 2016, uh, as well as to Egypt already since 2018 via pipeline on, on land. So, yes, Aaron, indeed, Israel is, uh, I think, adeptly planning to and already beginning to use natural gas exports to improve its relations with a number of states in the region. Mr. Foster, we're talking about all of the expansion and all of the development, the building of infrastructure. Let's just talk about the bottom line. When uh, you had pointed out previously, Amir, that while Americans are paying about $5 a tank for gasoline, the equivalent, a gallon, yeah. a gallon uh, it's the equivalent of $10 here in Israel. So my question to you, Mr. Foster, is when will any of this trickle down to the Israeli consumer and that they might feel some relief in the cost of living? Okay, so, so first of all, you, you talked about, about the oil, okay, um, when you talk about $5 per gallon for oil. Today right. in Israel, the natural gas prices are the lowest in the world. Okay, good point. I think they, they can't, they even, I think, about 50% less than the prices of natural gas in the state, which historically were the lowest in the world. And we have a huge resilience in Israel to the energy crisis in the world. Of course, not from the oil prices, but from electricity prices. That's true. We, we, we almost not feel this crisis, energy crisis in the world. Today, uh, the price in Israel, the, the average price for gas is about... 4.6 dollars in the in in Europe it's about 30 dollars in the states it's about nine dollars something like that and it's kind of amazing that we have this uh, capability to keep the prices low in Israel according to the uh, energy uh, ministry calculation in 2001 we saved on our energy bills 65 billion shekels just in 2021. And in 2022, it's probably will be more. It's because the gas is cheap and all the alternatives are much, much more expensive. I want to say another thing about uh, the region. 
we have enormous amount of potential to find more natural gas in Israel and in the region. The secret for how to do it right is to work in cooperation with other countries in the region like Egypt, like Jordan, maybe in the future with, uh, with Lebanon too. Of course, with, with Cyprus, we need to work together uh, uh, to develop assets together. And the natural gas is very important commodity for the next 20, 30, 40, and I think maybe 50 years in the world. And we need to work together and all the uh, area, the countries in the area, area will be very benefit from, um, from this work. We should point out to our viewers that the logo uh, above Mr. Foster's uh, head says Natural uh, Gas Association. Uh, just uh, if they are curious about the Hebrew um, uh, letters. I'm glad you explained that. I would like to ask you, obviously, for Europe, which right now, as was mentioned by uh, the ambassador, I believe, right now, I mean, Russia has been supplying 155 BCM. They're going to have a huge deficit. If Israel helps to step in and fill some of that void, is that going to endanger Israel's already very tenuous relationship with Russia? The former supplier. Well, Russia has suffered uh, so much, if uh, it did, because apparently uh, it managed by selling oil to offset some of uh, its problems. But if Russia suffered, it's um, because the other powers uh, ganged up against her, um, in a way. Israel is a very minor player in that arena. But you did, uh, by raising this topic, you did uh, point out to the uh, convergence of national and commercial interests. Because while uh, gas itself uh, has, of course, uh, a national feature, it must be uh, in an economic uh, uh, zone uh, belonging, in a way, to a certain nation, and it must be protected by a navy, which is, of course, a national uh, agency. Nevertheless, the exploration and then the production and the sale, this is all being done by corporations mm -hmm. uh, as commercial ventures. Uh, we, uh, for instance, uh, have seen Chevron. Uh, in the Egypt. in the Israeli market, they these corporations, of course, have their own financial interests and calculations, uh, such as uh, insurance rates uh, if uh, the uh, region is unstable. So all of that uh, works, and if you, if we don't see other. Uh, companies coming in to Israel, all of the goods which uh, Mr. Foster promised, promised uh, will not uh, uh, be uh, utilized. So um, all of that uh, points to the need uh, by all countries here to stabilize the situation, to work towards peace or at least normalization so that commercial interests will uh, deem it safe to come over and explore the resources. That's all very true and really fascinating. Ambassador Breza, do you believe that the economic fallout, first of all, that Russian President Vladimir Putin could have anticipated that Europe would react as strongly as it did to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, but now that there's been such enormous unity in an economic fallout 
over that invasion. Do you think that's likely to pressure Putin in any way to establish a ceasefire? Well, first of all, um, yeah, I, I, to answer your first question, I think Putin hugely miscalculated, but it's understandable why, because Putin, as we know, already unprovoked, invaded Ukraine in 2014 and, and annexed Crimea, totally illegally. In 2008, he did the same. He invaded Georgia and Russian troops still occupy 20% of that country. And the response by the West was tepid. Uh, the, 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 in other words, the, the consequences for Russia were, were virtually non-existent. The sanctions that were imposed in 2014 by, by the EU and the US were very, very light. So he miscalculated and maybe understandably because it didn't seem like uh, there was gonna be much of a cost to pay. Um, second question is, you know, what's gonna be the impact of the sanctions? So far, Russia is muddling through. Uh, and the, the thing about sanctions is that it takes a while for them to have an impact. So the sanctions are, are going to re result in a reduction of uh, you know, Russia's economy, a recession of around 8 to 10 percent. It's much worse for Ukraine, what, what Russia's invasion is doing to the Ukrainian economy. It's projected to contract by 45 percent this year. Uh, Russia is pulverizing Ukraine. Let's not mince words here. Nobody ganged up on Russia. Russia invaded Ukraine just as Hitler did uh, in, in World War II, invaded Poland and into Ukraine, uh, unprovoked. And so Russia will pay a price over time in the energy sector where it's really going to pay the price is a lack of technology. Uh, Russia is going to be unable to develop the fields that hold, hold huge amounts of oil and gas in the Arctic. Russia lacks the technology to do that. Russia is also now not going to be able to acquire the spare parts uh, that are necessary to keep its, all of its industries going, uh, but especially the oil and gas sector. So the impact isn't going to be immediate, uh, but over time, this is, they, these sanctions are going to be a crushing blow to the Russian economy. By ganging up, uh, of course, I meant through Russian eyes and in response to the invasion, not uh, that uh, it justified in any way uh, Putin's... Uh, no, of course. <laughs> of course. I think we understood that. But Mr. Foster, can you tell us, you were talking about subsea pipelines, and one of the most major ones, to, to my knowledge, was the East Med Pipeline Project. And that's been discussed for a long time. And again, it would involve Turkey's involvement, as far as I understand. What is the status of that project? Okay, before... before I will talk about the status of, of, of this project. I think people need to understand that energy infrastructure development is not playing for kids. It's very serious stuff. And the European Union didn't plan well the infrastructure they, that they built in the last 20 years. I think they mostly made work in a populism way, I will. I will. I, I think people in Europe don't don't like to to talk about it, but they we we see what happened now when the when they need to 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 have so much, um, you know, they 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 need to, to 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 work with Russia with so many amounts of 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 energy, and and they don't have any other resources that they can. Um, um, very fast to, to you know to 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 transfer from from the Russian uh, um, from from Russia, and I mean that they you know to go in and to build um, renewable energy is very important, and the world needs to work as fast as we can for doing that. But 
on the way that we are doing that, we can't uh, leave our energy security to the side. And what European made is that they didn't invest on natural gas infrastructure in the way they needed. I work today with the UNECE. I'm the vice chair of group of experts on gas. And we are talking for four or five years that Europe need to diverse the energy supply, but banks didn't want to invest or to give money. And you know, it's it's not a kid, it's not it's not work for kids, it's very serious work about your the pipeline that, that we talked about. The pipeline now, uh, there is not some not something new that I know about that. It's very complicated pipeline. The prices that, that there is today are good for building this pipeline. We, con- it's very visible economics, even with much lower prices. I think between seven to eight dollars uh, MMBTU in Europe. It's very visible from economic point of view to, to, to build this pipeline. But the European need to have long-term contracts if they want new infrastructure like that to be built. And for doing that, they must fight in Europe against the populists because we don't have any choice. The European any choice for supplying natural gas to Europe if they will not build new infrastructure. And for that, they need long-term contracts. If they want projects of 10 or $15 billion to be built. Ambassador Breza, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, definitely. In the natural gas industry, um, you need to have the long-term gas sales and purchase agreements in place to secure the financing to build new infrastructure. Gas is different from oil. Oil, because it's so fungible, because it is literally liquid, uh, can be put on a tanker and sent anywhere in the world to any customer. Uh, Natural gas is different. Until recently, you had to have infrastructure, meaning pipelines, connecting the producer uh, to the consumer. Today, of course, there's an option to liquefy that natural gas, but again, liquefaction plants are very expensive. And again, as we just heard, you need to have long-term contracts in place to secure the financing. But Europe is ready to sign those. I mean, European countries and private companies are ready to do it. The key is to make sure the gas supply is available. Yeah, but this is a new thing, you know. We're just out of time. But we're sorry, we're just out of time. I wanted to ask Amir, is it going to happen? Are you optimistic or pessimistic? With the promise of prosperity also come dependence and vulnerability. So we have to weigh the pros and cons. Well, I would like to thank my very distinguished panel for joining me today. And I'm sorry, right up time. This is fascinating. But uh, Mr. Amir Foster, who is the executive director and the Israel Natural Gas Trade Association. And uh, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council, M- Ambassador Matthew Bryza. Thank you both for being my guests. And Amir Oren, as always, good to have you by my side. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for this episode of Jerusalem Studio. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.